0: If you had business in a typical early morning in Erfurt, Germany back in 1506, and if that business took you into the vicinity of Augustine's monastery, you would have heard from deep within its walls a tortured voice crying out, meine Sünden, oh God, meine Sünden, meine Sünden. That's probably pretty bad pronunciation of German for my sins, oh God, my sins, my sins. If you had paused at the remarkable sound and waited a while, you would have heard this cry repeated intermittently for hours on end. And if you would have asked a citizen of that village, who happened to be out at that hour, that early morning hour, what kind of torment could produce such an anguished cry? The citizen would give you a knowing smile and say, the voice you're hearing belongs to a certain monk who joined our monastery last July. He's not from these parts exactly. He came to our university here as a law student, but early last July it Seems he got caught in a thunderstorm in an open field. The local monks, you know how they talk, say that bars of lightning imprisoned him all around. And I guess an experience like that might make you rethink your life. Well, being at the mercy of heaven, he fell to the ground, apparently, and vowed if God delivered him from this storm, he'd give the rest of his life to... <laughs> there he goes again. Listen. oh God, meine Sünden, meine Sünden. It, It's like this night and day. I don't think he's slept through one night since. Trouble is, neither has anybody else around here. He howls like this all night and deep into the morning, crying and crying. But if you would have visited Erfurt again five years or so later, that voice was no longer to be heard there or anywhere. He was assigned the job of teaching the book of Psalms and Romans to young students. And somewhere in the course of preparing for his lectures, he discovered the grace and forgiveness of God. It wasn't that he had not heard it all before, but now the message of God's forgiveness dawned upon his searching heart like a messenger with an order of release for a prisoner on death row. The grace of God made its way down to the lowest chambers of his heart and threw open the door. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. This man was Martin Luther. Thereafter, the words of the ancient psalmist were never far from his speech. He cried out from Psalm 32, verse 1, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. As Martin Luther's example attests, God's plan begins with conviction. The contrite heart becomes an obedient heart. And we see this conviction ministry in the ministry of John the Baptist. And we're going to take a deep look at that right after this.
1: Welcome to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast. Brought to you by Word of Flame Curriculum and the Pentecostal Publishing House. This podcast encourages adult disciples to think deeply about God's Word, further develop their personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and make a greater commitment to the purpose and plan of God for their lives. Let's dive into today's lesson and explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives.
0: Good day to you there, God's Word for Life listeners. So glad you're joining me on this God's Word for Life Companion Podcast. I'm your host, LJ Harry, and today we are taking a look at the lesson entitled A Part of God's Plan. It's dated October 31st, 2021. And we're going to take a look at the book of Luke, chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. If you have your Bible, let's turn there, or if you're just listening, certainly I'll read it to you and for you. But if you have your companion student guide, Please turn to October 31st, 2021, a part of God's plan, Luke chapter 3. Verse 3 reads, And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. God's work was at work in John the Baptist's life. It begins with a sense of one's sinfulness and their need for salvation. Until we become aware of our need for God, we will not be open to his work in our lives. John the Baptist's work began with the sinlessness of God and the forgiveness of God, but the sinfulness of man. His preaching stirred those who came to the wilderness to hear him. Hearts once again longed for the promised Messiah as John prepared the way of the Lord. The only way to know what it feels like to experience grace is to know we need to experience grace. So John preached repentance and baptism, and those who heard him preach were convicted, and they obediently submitted to the will of God into the waters of baptism. Luke 3 tells us John came from the country about Jordan, and he was preaching baptism, and he was preaching baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, and many of the people there turned to God. That's what conviction does but what does it feel like? How would you describe conviction to somebody who may have never felt conviction or at least known what to call it? John was wildly popular. He could have easily created his own following, but he continually pointed people who followed him toward one they would follow in the future, the Savior, the Messiah. Believing in a Messiah who would come in the future is easier than believing in a Messiah who was already here, but John dutifully preached this message and when Jesus was revealed to him as the Messiah, John began to dismantle his own following and pointed his followers to their new leader. And some of John's followers, notably John, who wrote the book of John and in the, in the book of Revelation, along with Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, they became some of the greatest disciples of Jesus Christ. John's message was very simple he preached repentance. His method was very simple. He baptized those who believed and repented, and he humbly took the focus off himself. He did not use people to serve his own ego. He continually pointed them to Jesus. In just the same way, God has called us to prepare the way for others to believe in him. What might that look like in our lives if we followed John's pattern and pointing other people to believe in Jesus, not to follow us, but to follow him? When Jesus came to be baptized, John was taken aback. And yet Jesus said to fulfill the righteousness of God's plan. Jesus, who was without sin, said he must be baptized. And so John baptized him. This was how seriously Jesus took the need for baptism. John said, I come to you and be baptized of you, and now you come to me. Jesus answered, Suffer it to be so, for Thus it becomes to fulfill all righteousness. And then John baptized him. If Jesus was in the water without sin, how much more should we be with sin? How much more should sinners be baptized? Jesus was setting the example. He said, it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. All righteousness was being fulfilled here. And this righteousness, thank God, is for everyone. So why was it important that Jesus was baptized? What was the significance there? Should we follow that example? How could we say if we have received Jesus as our Savior, if we're not even interested in looking to Jesus as our example? The scripture repeatedly teaches our need for baptism. Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist, he preached it. Jesus himself was baptized for the sake of righteousness. Jesus' apostles taught the necessity of baptism. How much more clear could the need for baptism and the beauty of baptism be? possibly be? And when we heard the story of Martin Luther in the beginning. Some of us may conclude, albeit too quickly, that he was being a little extreme. But it is no coincidence that an agent of a worldwide revival centered on the grace of God was haunted by the sinfulness of his sins. Only those who understand what sin really is will be able to really understand and appreciate what grace really is. Our culture encourages us in a thousand ways to move on from the notion of sin. We've, we've heard it, we've seen it, let's move on. But perhaps this is because sin is so integral to our culture's infrastructure. It produces this defensive reaction toward those who, like John the Baptist, would walk around shouting, Repent! We make fun of the guys with the sandwich boards who tell everybody to repent for the end is near. Our culture wants us to move from repentance And culture shifts, they always start with language. One cannot help but notice how our vocabulary has all but buried the word sin under scores of euphemisms. Preachers who go along with this program could use the following euphemisms just to make sure nobody feels any guilt or shame when they preach. Instead of sin, they might call it a moral failure. It sounds more official, has a dry sort of ring to it, as if the sinner had merely failed, which, if you're listening carefully, is a term that implies the sinner, they at least tried, even though they failed. Then, of course, there's mistake. This sounds like the kind of error one might make in a spelling bee, spelled with an O instead of an A, and just made a mistake. There's the flaw. This sounds a bit more serious, but it's the kind of word one might use to describe a beauty mark on an otherwise perfectly symmetrical face. How about problem? Giving the impression of something bigger than a mistake, but something we might associate more with a tough math question which is perfectly acceptable if someone is not good at math. Oversight. Suggesting something a person would have not have done if somebody had just simply pointed it out. It's not my fault it was an oversight. If I had known, I would have done better. Indiscretion gives the impression of something a person has done that is not exactly polite, but it has more to do with manners than it does with sin. Shortcoming. An act that this really is God's fault. He made me this way. I have my shortcomings. Or it's our parents' fault for the way they raised us. They raised me with shortcomings. It's someone else's fault for getting on my nerves. There's slip-up, something that's totally out of our control. Who left the banana peel in my way? It was just a, a slip-up. It wasn't sin. And there's issue. This implies being predisposed to act-up whenever we're confronted with certain situations. It's It's not my fault. I've got issues. We're less inclined in these gentler days, more sensitive days, to use the word sin. It's so loaded, so stark, so impolite, antiquated. It's really too theological. We're more inclined to think of sin in medical terms or political terms as an orientation or perhaps an expression of freedom, but we should insist on biblical terms when it comes to matters of the soul. And here are the words Scripture uses to relate to sin, iniquity, trespass. Transgression, guilt, disobedience, unrighteousness, wickedness, evil, shame, fault, ungodliness. Those are heavy. Why do you think some churches avoid using the word sin? Imagine a social commentator today saying something like, You are a depraved and iniquitous man. The language sounds like something out of a Dickens novel or Bunyan or Chaucer or Dante. This this kind of language is unsustainable in a culture that has no clear underlying sense of divine alienation, that we are separated from God, no clearly, distinctly theological definition of sin. And if these are not present, our culture will have an even more difficult time understanding the significance of God's grace and forgiveness. So what is sin? The Bible, especially in Paul's letters, speaks of sin in the singular, not of sins, but sin. Sins are the things we do in disobedience, but sin is a power. In Pauline terms, sin is something we cannot free ourselves from. Its dominion over the human being is total. Since after the fall, sin became part of our human composition, there is almost predictable quotient of action to sin. As a man caught in quicksand falls deeper by every effort to escape, even attempts to free ourselves from sin merely ends up leading to more and more. Sin is a power that must be broken by a greater power. Whatever sin is, it required the death of the Son of God. It is so fundamentally awful that on the very night Jesus acted to save humanity, the evangelists who wrote scripture, wrote Jesus took some bread and blessed it, Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28. The forgiveness of sins does not sound like an issue or a mistake or a slip up. It sounds like something aimed directly at the creator, an assault on heaven, a coup staged against his majesty, the kind of thing that might compel a creator to either destroy the world or destroy himself in saving it. Sin is not harmless. In a North American context, convincing people of their need for salvation can be difficult even the cross itself has become an object of such familiarity, just another symbol along all the other religious icons. But we must break through the familiarity. There is no more fitting summary of what the cross meant in the first century than to repeat Dietrich Bonhoeffer's observation that at Calvary, God let himself be pushed out of the world and onto the cross. This should shatter every notion that sin could ever be just a mistake or a challenge or a case of somebody being socially maladjusted. Whatever sin is, it required the total unadulterated shaming of God in the flesh. No wonder the man who would spark a reformation with his emphasis on the grace of God was so profoundly shaken by his sins. He saw the depth of his sin in the ugliness of the cross. And no wonder John's message was repent. No wonder we must be born again of the water and the spirit. The lost must know the word of God and the hope Jesus gives through his death on the cross, through the power of his glorious gospel. So now we have seen the dark side of sin. Let's take a look at the marvel of God's forgiveness. In the words of the psalmist, as Luther quoted it often, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Psalm 32, verse 1. Once we discover the depth of our sin, the greater the awe of the danger we were in, and the lengths to which God has gone to forgive us. How can we know such things, and how could we respond with silence? It is incumbent upon us to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How can we do that? How can we best share God's great, glorious gospel? Our message may seem fierce, much like John the Baptist, because we preach repentance and the need for a new birth. That can be a very hard pill for people to swallow. The gospel is unflattering because it essentially resists all human attempts to find a solution within ourselves. It is most insulting to human pride because it is a free gift of God. The gospel essentially says you are so impoverished, so broken, none of your efforts can ever earn you salvation. The only way you could ever be saved is if salvation is granted to you as a gift from above. Even if the gospel does not flatter us, even if it starts with ground zero, would we not rather be a part of the plan that actually works? I certainly want to be. All right, let's wrap this up. The Swiss theologian Karl Barth illustrated the gravity of humanity's spiritual situation by telling the story of a man who once rode his horse on a pitch black night in winter. He had no sense of where he was. He hoped to find some sign of where he was, and at last he heard voices up ahead calling out to him. He came closer to the sound of those voices, and he could see dark figures at a slightly higher elevation jumping up and down and warning him, and some of them were saying stop, and others were saying go. Then it sounded as if the voices that had said stop, was now saying go, and the one who said go was now urging him to stop. What to do? He quickened his horse's pace until he came where the voices were, and one of the figures who called out when he came by reached out his hand, grabbed the horse's bridle, and pulled the horse and rider violently to where the others were. The man got off his horse and looked closely at the figures. They were men from a nearby village, and one of them asked, Don't you know where you are? And he said, no, I'm afraid I've lost my way. Well, we could hear someone riding off in the distance, but by the time we could see you, it was too late. Well, too late for what? One of the other figures said, I guess you really didn't know, but you've been riding for at least the last mile over Lake Constance. I have? Yes. All right, I, I didn't know that. I couldn't see. Is the lake not frozen? A third voice answered, No. The ice is only two inches thick in most places, and most places have no ice cover at all. The lake is deep and cold. You are in mortal danger every single step. The rider's knees weakened under a strange burden of both joy and horror. He wept as he ran to the nearest figure and collapsed. This, Bart used to say, is our situation. We were in the greatest danger, but we hardly knew it. Human beings are capable of moving with ease through life, not quite knowing they tread upon a surface so thin it can hardly hold their weight, and just beneath it is certain death. But once they truly hear the gospel and rightly respond to it, they will know both the terror they escaped and the unparalleled joy of being forgiven. The psalmist was right, and Luther was to quote him, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Thank God for his amazing grace. Let's take a moment right now to pray and praise and thank God for his grace. And maybe you have never heard the gospel, but now you know Jesus Christ came. God himself came in flesh to save us from our sins, to offer his life for us so we would not be lost. This is a perfect opportunity to respond to the gospel through repentance, through baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, to have his name applied to your life. And then also to be filled with the gift of His Holy Spirit and be made more and more like Him every day. Lord, I love you and I thank you for your grace. I am a wretched sinner, and yet you are gracious beyond anything I deserve. Thank you for your mercy and grace and your forgiveness. I praise you and I pray for anyone listening to this episode that if they have never experienced the grace of God, you had reached with grace and forgiveness and mercy, and draw them close to you. Send conviction today to convict them of the wrongs, when they're doing wrong, and what they're doing wrong, so they can repent and you can forgive them. Lead them to baptism. Lead them to a place where they'll receive the gift of your Holy Spirit. Do these wondrous works, I pray, God, according to your wondrous grace. We give thanks and praise to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to God's Word for Life. I hope this episode has been a blessing to you. Be sure to click subscribe so you'll know every time a new episode drops and you can continue to learn right along with us. If you would like to pick up a copy of the companion student guide that will help you as you follow along God's Word for Life, go to godswordforlife.faith. That link is there in the show notes and you'll be able to see exactly the lesson we're learning as you follow along with us. And be sure to share this episode, this podcast with somebody who you believe could be blessed and helped by it. I hope God's Word for Life is helping you to draw closer to Jesus and learn more about His marvelous, glorious grace. If you are a teacher in your local church and you would like to learn how to be a better teacher in your local church, join us for our Formed Conference teacher training. You can register at formed.upci.org. It's virtual, so it's online. You can be a part of it from wherever you are. It is on November the 6th. 2021. If you'd like more information or to register, go to formed.upci.org. Next week, we're going to begin a new series called Praise Ye the Lord. And the very first lesson is dated November 7th, 2021, and it is entitled Walking in Righteousness. We're going to start right there at Psalm 1. I look forward to sharing that with you next week and always look forward to learning and living out
1: God's word